Our reading for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, their, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to our service. And again, for those of you who uh, may be new, uh, I want you to know that we are working through a series of sermons and teaching on the New City Catechism. And we are now on question 25. And so as we begin every service, we want to begin with a little review. And so if I could have the question 20 up on the board. Um, I would encourage you once again to memorize uh, the catechism, beginning with question 20, uh, if you haven't done so already. Um, if not, you can look on the screen, but uh, if you can, to close your eyes and to recite um, from memory if possible. Okay? Question 20, who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. 21, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? 24, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Okay, so today the question uh, is 25. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? And so, uh, as I mentioned last time, we are going to uh, revise the answers a little bit to, uh, for ease of memory. So if I can get the next slide up. So the adult's answer is yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin. God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and, re and will remember our sins no more. And so that's what I will be uh, speaking on today, that full answer. Um, but the children's version is yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin. God will remember our sins no more. But the version we are going to memorize, the shorter -er version, is in bold there. Yes, because of Christ's death, God will remember our sins no more. And so that's what we're going to go with uh, for our memorization. So again, I want to just invite you, encourage you to, to learn the catechism uh, as a way of having uh, an understanding of the, the broad and the overall teaching uh, of scriptures. And so I uh, encourage you to, to memorize that. Uh, let's pray together. 
Father, we are uh, thankful again this day um, to learn more about our Redeemer, uh, the Christ, the one who died for us so that our sins might be forgiven, so that you will remember our sins no more and that we might have eternal life. So we, we thank you. And we ask now in the hearing of your word, uh, help us to receive what you have for us and in the receiving to respond in accordance with your will and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, You may be aware that Paul, the Apostle Paul, did not have a great relationship with the church in Corinth. Um, Even though Paul planted that church, even though Paul loved that church, even though Paul prayed for that church, even though there were certainly friends in that church, um, there, were met, there, were, there was a handful of people, it seems, uh, a group of leaders, that were skeptical of Paul's motives, of his theology, of his supposed lack of spirituality, and of his credentials as a real apostle of Jesus Christ. And so this reading today that you heard from chapter 5 is a part of Paul's defense of his life and ministry. And he begins by asserting that his only motivation is the love of Christ. That last song we just sang, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. That's, that's something that Paul would have sang, and that's what he's writing here, that it is the love of Christ that is my only motivation for the work that I do and my love for you. Now, of course, the love of Christ Grammatically, it could mean, you know, the love that Paul has for Christ, or it could mean the love that Christ, the love that of Christ, the love that Christ has for him, the love of Christ. And you know, in Paul's mind, the two are always inseparably entwined. That Christ's love for him always necessitates or is always linked with his love for Christ. But here in context, I think he's really focusing primarily on Christ's love for him. That what Christ has done for him in love, that is what motivates him. Not so much of his response to that love, his love of Christ, but the love of Christ for him. The love of Christ demonstrated in the cross and vindicated by the resurrection. He is convinced, he says, of the full, objective, historical reality of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is that love, not some feeling, but that objective reality that compels him or controls his life and ministry. It's that conviction that has fundamentally changed his perspective on the way he sees the world. He writes, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, including Jesus, right? Because of this reality, because of this fact, we no longer see according to the flesh. Because, you know, the way, the, the, the perspective that you have uh, about the world really shapes how you're going to react to everything else. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of science fiction, and many of my favorite science fiction uh, stories uh, play with this idea of reality, that the, the protagonist finds themselves in a reality that is really not real, right? 
So for example, like The Matrix or uh, Inception, um, Total Recall, Blade Runner, um, and a show that my wife and I have been enjoying uh, lately, um, Orphan Black, um, right? The, the characters find themselves in a reality that is not the real reality. And so then the question becomes, if possible, do I want to kind of go back to the pretend reality, or am I going to enter into this real reality and deal with a much more complex and difficult situation? And, and I think that's what um, Paul is getting at here, that he sees the world and people very differently because of what Jesus has done. Like that event has completely changed the way he's going to see the world. Uh, you know, like many of you, um, I endured regular bouts of um, racist-based bullying uh, until my senior year in high school um, when I became um, strong enough and I had a group of friends who were tough enough um, were willing to fight for me. Um, but, you know, all throughout high school, uh, even the, during the years when it was difficult, I was very optimistic about the American dream. I drank the Kool-Aid, literally and figuratively, of this idea of America as this wonderful, harmonious melting pot. I, I really did. I, I really did. That's how I saw the world. That's how I saw my life as an immigrant in this country. Um, not so much anymore. And I, there's no pill for me to take to kind of go back to my, uh, to my ignorance. I, I think there are certain historical events after which you can never look at the world the same way again. For many older Americans, I think it was probably Pearl Harbor. That after that, they could not see the world the same way. For many of our parents, it was the Korean, American, the, the Korean War. For some of us here, it might be 9-11. Others of you, it might be the election of President Obama. Others of you, it might be the election of President Trump. Right? There, there are certain events, maybe personal too, like getting married or having kids or, or facing a right, life-threatening illness or perhaps the death of a parent after which you, you cannot see the world in the same way. It alters radically, fundamentally, the way you view the world. And it may not be one singular event. It could be simply the accumulation of a lifetime of experiences, learning, and study that changes your perspective, perhaps like the study of history has done for me in the way I kind of view the world now. Another way that we might ask this today is, um, are you woke? How woke are you? Do you really understand? I'm just embarrassing my kids now. Do you really understand what's going on in the world today? And Paul says the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is decisive for the way he looks at the world. He cannot see any human being according to the flesh, in the way that he looked at them before. According to the flesh, Jesus was a colossal failure. He died. According to the flesh, Paul 
is an uninspiring leader. He had more failures and sufferings than he could count. And if we just think of it that way, according to the flesh, then yeah, they are absolute failures. But if we see the world through the lens of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it's a very different way of reading the story. C.S. Lewis has a sermon uh, many years ago entitled The Weight of Glory, in which he said that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, he writes. Every single person you meet, including the most dullest and uninteresting person you talk to, is headed toward immortality. Every single, right? That, That if you believe in the death and the resurrection, and you believe in scriptures, you know that every single human being is not mortal. They're immortal. And they're headed toward, Lewis says, either toward such beauty that you are tempted to worship them or headed towards such corruption that it would be worse than your worst nightmare. There are no mere human beings. People are headed one way or the other. And Paul says that those who are in Christ, they're a new creation. We cannot see people in the same way. We cannot do that because we recognize that in Christ we are a new creation And everyone has been made new and reconciled by God and therefore valuable. Every single one. Every single human being, regardless of your particular judgment. There's an uh, apocryphal story about Karl Barth, one of the great 20th century German theologians. And he was supposedly asked what he would say to Adolf Hitler if he had a chance to meet him. And so as as a great theologian, we might expect him to respond to Hitler with uh, righteous anger or perhaps with prophetic judgment. Um, But Bart supposedly replied that he would say nothing other than, quote, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is what Paul is saying here. The unparalleled mercy of God is the only thing, the only chance that anyone has of genuine repentance. It is the love of God in Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, God made a decision to reconcile us to himself through the cross. And therefore, because of what Christ has done, because of what God has done in Christ, we cannot look at other people in the same way. We cannot consider others as outsiders, or as enemies. We are given new eyes to see. The old things have passed away. See everything and everyone has become new. The new creation is complete in Christ, but that reality has ongoing consequences. The newness in Christ is entirely the work of God, but it then leads us necessarily to the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. Now, this idea of reconciliation or this word reconciliation can mean a number of things. Uh, It can mean for us, when we say uh, reconciliation, it can mean something like a a peaceful resignation. You know, like um, I've I've reconciled myself to the fact that um, I'm never going to dunk a basketball or I'm never going to get my hair back. Like I've reconciled, I've made peace, this sort of sad sort of peace with it. 
Um, we can talk about a kind of a negotiated compromise. You might talk about a couple who are fighting, but now they've reconciled. They've you know, made some sort of uh, compromised peace, something like that. Uh, but God does not reconcile in either of those senses. It is not resignation. It is not compromise. It's not like God saying, well, you know, I've really tried hard to, to make people better, but they're not, so I'm going to lower the bar for holiness, or I guess I'll just resign myself to the fact that people are just going to be, you know, sinners, and oh, well, oh, well I just got to deal with it. That, that's not what it's talking about here. God does not change. There is no shadow of turning with God. But God reconciles the world to himself. He does not reconcile himself to the world. He reconciles the world to himself. And he does that because the loss is real. What we owe is real. And God does not change. But God chooses not to count what is against him against us. As the catechism says, God will remember our sins no more. Doesn't mean that you know he is going to somehow give himself a bout of amnesia or something. It means that the consequences of our sin will no longer be counted against us. And one word for this for Paul is is reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins. This is reconciliation that God makes possible and God initiates. In fact, Paul is the only one in the Bible who uses this word reconciliation. And he has a kind of a narrow usage. For him, it's something that God initiates, not us. It's something that God does for us. And therefore, God then gives us this message and the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors. Um, you know, just as ambassadors today, you, you go to a foreign country and you represent the country, you speak on behalf of the country, you know, you work for the good of the country that you are being sent from. And so Paul says, that's us. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. That God in Jesus Christ has forgiven us and made us one. And I think Paul, you know, probably experienced this in a more profound way than, than many of us because, you know, for a part of his life, I mean, he persecuted the church. And so for him to be reconciled with God was, the, you know, it, again, it just fundamentally changed the way he went about life. He, he writes in uh, Galatians, for example, that it was God who by his grace was pleased to reveal the Son to him. So he, he knows that it wasn't because he tried harder to find God. It's not because he was more deserving in any way. It was simply that God, in, in his mercy, somehow chose to reveal the truth to him. And it's that knowledge that it's not his work. Reconciliation is never his work or our work. It is the completed act of God. God has reconciled us to himself through his work. It's something entirely from God's side in one regard. But because of that, there is a kind of duty that falls to us. Because even though God has done that, it's something that we then have to embrace and appropriate for our own benefit. Therefore, he pleads, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Right? It only makes sense that there's something for us to do. Because if God has done all the work, then why would he tell us to be reconciled? Well, first of all, I think, again, it's us receiving or accepting the reconciliation that God makes possible with God. Uh, something I talked about last week, you know, this ideal of this Jesus 
becoming the substitution or making atonement for us on the cross. Paul says here, verse 21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's all God through Jesus Christ, but it is an act that we must appropriate individually for ourselves for it to be effective. Otherwise, this call to be reconciled makes no sense. So that's the first part of it. Jesus became sin for us. What does that mean? I think most of us think about sin really as kind of individual, personal, moral failures. We think about sin in terms of, you know, I lied or, or I cheated or I stole something, I swore, whatever that may be. But, but in Paul's world and in, in the biblical world, sin is, is much bigger. Sin is not just personal moral failure. It is a great evil force that is working against the will of God. It is death that leads us and keeps us in bondage. We are slaves of sin and unable to live the life that we want or the life that God calls us to live. It's what leads to violence and hate. It's what ruptures relationships and destroys families and nations. And secondly, sin in the context of an honor-shame culture, sin centers around group dynamics, and it is fundamentally about relationships. Sin is about dishonoring God, and it's about shaming God. Because when you don't act right, when you act in such a way that you think that the relationship with God is not important, it brings shame to God. That's what sin is, to act in a way as if God didn't matter. And so in in that context, if someone has been shamed, that person has to do something to get their honor back. Uh, Even in the news today, you'll occasionally hear about people doing an honor killing, right? Someone in the family has been shamed, and so now someone in the family has to go out and restore honor to the family. And and that's, that's what he's working with here, with this ideal of sin, that Christ became sin for us. So this is a surprise. Instead of God restoring honor to himself, God instead does something else. God himself chooses reconciliation over his own honor. He chooses not to count our sins against us. And he does that by Jesus becoming sin for us. Now, what that means is not exactly clear. I think Paul is here um, just, he's evoking uh, these images and language about the animal sacrifices of the old system where an animal would sort of represent sin on behalf of the people and would be sacrificed. I think he's talking about uh, Jesus sort of uh, representing humanity uh, in another way, that he's fully participating in our uh, death uh, as a representative. Um, I don't want to you know, parse this too much more, but somehow Jesus becomes sin for us. And we exchange then his righteousness with our sin. Some sort of divine exchange takes place, which God makes uh, possible. And, you know, in our tradition, we have come to understand the righteousness of God primarily 
uh, as a forensic righteousness, that is, in terms of um, crime and punishment. That, like in a, in a court of law, God finds Israel guilty of unfaithfulness and deserving of punishment, but God takes that punishment upon himself and releases the nation from that punishment so that the punishment that we deserve then is somehow placed on Jesus and so punishment is made, payment is made, and there is forgiveness. And that's this word, imputation, that God's righteousness is somehow imputed or given to us in exchange for our sinfulness, that God declares us free and innocent even though we're not, because of this exchange that takes place. I know that's a little bit uh, complicated. But what, what this does, though, um, God's righteousness points to God's power, that he is able and that one day he will put things right, that as judge he will restore right relationships. And what Paul is telling us is that this Activity of God has already begun in Jesus, that through Jesus and in fidelity to his own covenant, God has acted rightly toward his people, toward humanity, and toward all of the created order. God's righteousness at its core is really, again, about relationships. Righteousness for us as a church is not about doing the right things in some abstract moral vacuum. Just as sin is fundamentally a break in right relationships, it's not simply that you're stealing something in some abstract sense. It's that you're stealing from someone. And it's that break in that relationship that is at the heart of, of sin. In the same way, righteousness also has this relational quality at its core. I think this is really important. So let me try to explain this with um, something from from Genesis. In Genesis chapter 38, there is this um, kind of unsavory, uh, R-rated story. It's weird that it's in there because if you read Genesis, chapter 37 ends with the story of Joseph being sold off to slavery into Egypt. And then chapter 39 picks up that story with Joseph in Egypt. So, the, so you could just delete chapter 38 and, and the story would flow much more smoothly. So it, it's weird that chapter 38 is actually in there. It's, it's almost like someone kind of just, you know, kind of snuck it in there, you know, slipped it in when they were putting the Bible together or something to, to put this, this story in there. It's, just, it's kind of an unusual story. Chapter 38 is a story about Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and a brother of Joseph, and a woman named Tamar, his daughter-in-law. So in this story, Judah has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And his oldest, he marries off to a woman named Tamar. But the first son, Er, is wicked, and so God has him die. According to the law, If that happens, then the brother has to marry the widow and have children so that those children can carry on the brother's 
name. It's a little weird, but that's the way, it, that's the way it's set up. So the second son, Onan, marries Tamar, but he doesn't want to have kids with her because he knows that they're not going to be his kids. So he doesn't, uh, how do I put it? He doesn't have intimacy with Tamar, and so God kills him. I know there's a lot of weird, this is, this is a very difficult text. So now Judah's got one son left, the third son, Shelah, and you know, he's a little, he, you know, it's, it's a little afraid. And so he tells Tamar, listen, my third son is, he's too young. When he gets older, then you can marry him. So, so remain a widow, and when he's old enough, then you can marry him. So Tamar waits and waits and waits. Now Judah, you know, he, he wants to protect his son. One day, years later, Judah's wife dies. And so he is now going to go and have some fun, apparently. So he goes to town, and he brings his son with him. And Tamar sees that Shelah is now all grown up, but that he has not been given to her in marriage as promised. Right? So she takes off her widow's clothing. I mean, all these years, she's, she's had to live as a widow. And so she puts on some clothes, puts on a disguise, and Judah sees her, doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law. But, but remember, now his wife has just died. And so now he sees her, and he thinks she's a prostitute. And so he says, hey, you know, well, you know, right? So he, he approaches her, and she says, okay, well, what, what will you give me if you want to hang out with me? And he says, well, I'll give you a young goat. And so she says, okay. But he doesn't have a young goat with him. So he gives her... Uh, a, a, like a ring, probably a, a staff, something like his. His basically gives her his, you know, driver's license. You know, this is my promise. I'll send you a young goat later. So he does, goes home, sends a young goat to her, thinking she's a like a temple prostitute. But they said, no, there's no temple prostitute here. Who, what are you talking about? Says, all right, just never mind. Just let her keep my keep my stuff. Three months later, Judah gets the news that Tamar is pregnant. His daughter-in-law is pregnant. So Judah's like, he's, he's righteously angry. He's like, what's, you know, this immoral woman? Have her burned at the stake. That's what he says. Let's, let's bring her out. Let her be burned. And then she sends his ID to him and says, this is the man by whom I become pregnant. And Judah sees that, that it's him, that he's the guilty one, that he's the father. I mean, this, is, this is like so messed up at so many levels, right? I mean, there's just, ugh, it's just like... You just don't want to even read this stuff. Right? And then Judah says something that's very, very interesting. When he realizes what he's done, he says this. She is more righteous than I. There's that word, righteous. She is more righteous than I. Right? It's an odd thing to say. Because she's not righteous. I mean, right? She did some things that were like, you know, very, very questionable, as, as did he. She is more righteous than I is an interesting confession for me. Now, I don't think he's saying that she is somehow slightly more 
morally superior because what he did was more disgusting than what she did. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think he's making a claim about righteousness in a way that we don't understand righteousness or normally the way we think about righteousness. In that cultural context, to be righteous means that you're acting in a way, you're acting in a way that is relationally faithful, right? So he has acted in a way that was not faithful because he had promised his son to her. Now think about this. For her, not being married, being a widow is a very, very difficult situation. And so not being given the son that was promised basically ruined her life. Because she could not be married, she had no status, and because she could not have children, because she had no husband, it, again, brought her lower and lower in her community. And so, again, it's it's very questionable what she did, but by what she did, she was able to have children. In that regard, she was righteous. She acted in such a way to restore the relationships or her relational position within her community. And so she's more righteous because Judah, again, it's not just about moral failure. He had acted in a way that reduced her social standing in a way that removed her from her community. And she acted in a way to restore her position within her society. So she did what she had to do to kind of force everyone back to the way that the relationships were supposed to be in that family structure. So it's not right in the way we think about it, but in that context, she acted in a more righteous way. And I think if we are to be righteous today, then we have to be, it seems to me, faithful in our relationships. Rather than thinking about sin in terms of personal moral failures, right? Like, oh, I was supposed to not eat that cake, you know, oh, that's, that's sin, right? I'm on a diet and I said I wasn't going to, you know, have that second slide. Like, that's sin, yeah, okay, but it's really about how are we being faithful in our relationships. That's what Paul is getting at here when he's talking about reconciliation, There are two facets. Certainly, be reconciled with God. Yes, and God has done that. But be reconciled with and to one another. Become the righteousness of God as a church. That's what Paul is getting at here. I think when he's saying be reconciled, you you can almost hear Paul saying, be reconciled to one another and with me. That reconciliation is the evidence of God's reconciling work in your life life together. That's the life to which we are called, to be reconciled with God and with one another. That's Paul's word. You know, um, probably like me, most of you, um, maybe some of our younger folks here, when I was, when I first became a Christian, I was very idealistic about the Christian life. I was very, um, yeah, I mean, I just thought, if I, ever, if I make a mistake relationally, if I, if I sin against someone, if I hurt someone, um, I thought if I'm sincere, if I'm earnest, if I apologize, that that relationship would be restored. You know? And I still remember my, my uh, freshman year in college, uh, after I became a Christian, 
I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll seek out the people, you know. Um, I started with my, my younger sister. You know, I, we had, I had done some things to her that was not good, and we had argued a lot growing up, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apologize to her, and I'm going to be reconciled with my sister, and everything's going to be great. Well, it, it didn't work, you know, because she, she was like, well, so you're a Christian, so you have to, you know, be a good guy now. And she would just, like, poke me every which way to just, you know, get me to scream at her and stuff. And, and of course, I did, you know. I, and I was, like, constantly trying to, like, somehow be reconciled. And it, it just, to this day, right, it's just, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, right? And you think that, you know, there are going to be people that if you just, you can make amends with people, um, that people will be forgiving. But as you, as you know, as you get, as you live your life a little bit, you know that, that it's not, it doesn't work that way, right? That some hurts are just very, very difficult to mend. And there are some people who just are not going to be forgiving and have no interest in being reconciled with you. And that's hard, you know? Um, like, maybe you're at the lot, no, not the library, maybe you're at a grocery store, Right? And you see someone that maybe you were friends once, but not anymore, right? And what do they do? They, like, pretend they didn't see you, and they, they start walking in the other direction, right? It's not just me, right? Right? Because you, you don't want to have that awkward moment of having to talk about or to be reminded of that, that ugliness, that rupture. Um, so that's what we do. We kind of try to avoid people or um, ignore the situation, you know, we've had people who came to this church to visit. They, some, they saw somebody here, not me, but they saw somebody here that they, you know, from the past something, they never came back. I'm not blaming anyone here. I'm just telling you, right? It, it happens. Sometimes you are part of a church and, and, and hurts take place, and so you leave the church. You become a refugee at another church. Some of you are here because you're refugees from other churches. I know that. That's fine. Right? But that's, that's our human condition. That's the reality, right? And so it's easy for us to think, well, you know, it's just life. You just have to accept that that's, you know, and it's, it's just too much energy and, and it's just too hard to make those kinds of uh, reconciliations. And so you just kind of accept it. It's part of life and you move on. Except the Bible says no. Right? It's not just naive optimism on my part. The Bible, the gospel screams, no. You are given the ministry of reconciliation. If you are not moving toward that, then we're not giving evidence of the work of Christ in our lives. Given the growing divisions in this country and in the world today, we especially need to be ambassadors of Christ's reconciliation. And not just in some large-scale, grand, national kind of way, which is, again, that's fine too, but as a church, within the relationships that we have with people. We have the power of the Spirit, and we have this command, and we have this hope that we do not see according to the flesh. We have a new orientation and we work toward reconciliation. Because if we don't, then we're denying the power of God and the work that Christ has done for us. God invites us 
and asks us and trusts us with the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Not only do we, as emissaries, bring the message of reconciliation to the world, but it's something that we must also do the work here and now. Um, I was sharing this with my uh, FG this past week, or maybe it was two weeks ago. Um, I guess it was this past week. My memory, wow. I think it was this, just two days ago. Um, I was saying that I came to understand this idea really, you know, kind of embarrassingly late in my life because um, I was not interested in reconciling relationships when I became a Christian um, in, in, in a kind of an abstract way. Um, I thought, maybe based on my early failures, um, I didn't want that work. I was so happy, I was so joyful that God had saved me, right? That, that, I, that I was going to have eternal life, that my sins were forgiven. I, I was so happy with that. And all I wanted to do was tell people about that, right? Become a missionary, go to the, the, you know, the jungles of the Amazon and, and preach the gospel and you know, share this great news with everyone. And it didn't occur to me that that was something I was supposed to do with the people in my immediate life. For me, becoming a Christian at that point was a kind of escapism from my life, from the mundane and from the ordinariness of life. If I'm going to, I just want to preach the gospel. I don't want to deal with filling out, you know, tax forms and, you know, getting oil changes in my car or, or changing diapers, right? I don't want that stuff. I don't want to make up with my sister, I just want to go and preach and be super spiritual and, and get away from sort of the ordinariness of life, this less spiritual stuff. Like the false teachers at the church of Corinth, the, the hyper-spiritualists, that was my temptation. I thought I could somehow be in Christ, be holy, and not be a part of the body. And of course, what I discovered along the way is that you know spirituality, it's not escape. To be in Christ means precisely that I'm, I'm more engaged, more immersed in the lives and to see them in a very different way and to seek the peace and the reconciliation of our relationships. It moves me, sometimes very painfully, toward deeper involvement. Be reconciled. That's the power, that's the evidence of God's spirit working in you. Don't make people become refugees in your family, and in our church. Don't let those who are here feel like they're strangers. Not today. Be an ambassador for Christ. Be the righteousness of God. Uh, let, let me close with this. It's a kind of a silly illustration, but um, you know, we're about to share at this table a meal of communion, of reconciliation a communion that is possible because of what Christ has done for us to be the body of Christ. Uh, I was remembering this week that when I first came to this country as an eight-year-old, um, I, I remember on the airplane ride over, I was learning the alphabet. And I got about two-thirds way through the alphabet when we landed in this country. I memorized up to that point. Um, so I didn't really know English, obviously. Um, but one of the very first memories I have is that I th it must have been in that first week we were in this country. We had just come to this country, and I was at the local grocery store, a Tops, 
uh, with my dad, which is weird because my dad never goes grocery shopping, but, but I have this vivid memory. And I remember, like, you know, just kind of walking up and down the aisles, and um, he found a little children's book in the shelves, and, and he grabbed one because he was going to teach me to read or teach our, the kids how to read. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, this is, this is how my dad is, right? He, he doesn't research anything. He just kind of, well, you got to read, so let's get a book. Just first book that he sees just grabs it, and it had a cover of a little rabbit and a lion. It's a children's book, so this is what you're going to read. Um, so, you know, when, when you, we teach our, when we taught our kids, I told you, you know, they started with Mac and Tab, you know, a phonics, you know, ah, ah, you learned that sound first, and, and so on. So my dad grabs a book called Tawny Scrawny Lion. Um, Tawny Scrawny Lion. You know, I didn't know what Tawny meant until last night when I looked this up. <laughs> Do you know what it means, Tawny? Anybody? Huh? Yeah, it's a color. Yeah. It's, it's the color of a, of a lion, right? It's, it's a brownish-orange hue. That's, that's tawny. I always thought it was like, like taut, like, you know. I, I, literally, I looked it up in the dictionary last night. Uh, scrawny, of course, I know what it means. So it's, it's about this tawny, scrawny lion. And I thought, this is what my... So imagine this. You don't know any English. You don't know the alphabet. And the first vocabulary word your dad is trying to teach you is tawny. And he doesn't know what that is, Right? That's my world. Um, but the, that's, that's actually not even relevant. <laughs> the story, though, I mean, this is, this is incredible for me. I still remember the gist of the story. It was probably the first book I read or had read to me. And it's about a lion who's, who's hungry. And so every day he hunts animals to eat because he's constantly hungry. So, you know, Mondays he chases uh, Giraffes. Tuesday, he chases kangaroos, or like right. So, and he's constantly, constantly hungry. So, all the animals in the jungle, they're they're afraid of getting eaten. So, they trick a little rabbit. Rabbit, you go talk to the lion. And so, the rabbit thinks this. You know, oh, this is a great honor for me. You know, these big animals, they trust me to talk with the lion. And so, the lion goes. And the lion, I mean, the, the rabbit is just completely oblivious that the lion just wants to eat him. But because he's so oblivious, he just says, hey, lion, let's have dinner together. I have, you know, five fat sisters and four fat brothers, and we can all have family dinner together. <laughs> right? And so the lion's thinking, okay, instead of just eating this rabbit now, I'm going to wait so I can eat ten fat rabbits. <laughs> right? So the rabbit takes him uh, home, and at home, the rabbit uh, makes this fish carrot stew, and the lion wants to wait a little long. He's going to eat the soup first, and then he's going to eat the rabbits. But he loves the soup. He loves the soup. <laughs> he, and he just constantly, just, and, he gets, and he's no longer scrawny. He's still tawny, but he's no longer scrawny, and he gets, like, fat. And uh, he's satisfied. That's the story. <laughs> Why are you telling us this story? It's not great literature, okay? It's not great literature. And maybe I'm stretching it here. But that story for me really illustrates the power of hospitality. Because the lion is not hungry for a leg of giraffe, you know, or a breast of kangaroo. He's hungry for companionship, really. I, I know. <laughs> maybe, maybe reading too much into it, right? And the rabbit, 
was able to reconcile the lion with the rest of the jungle animals. I think that's the invitation. To eat and to drink, to be gathered around the common table, to share a, a silly story like this from 45 years ago, that's what it takes to be reconciled. It's an invitation to a meal. As I said at the beginning of the year, you know, invite someone to a BLT. Share a meal with someone. And that's what we do here. This is what this table is. We are reconciled. We are able to be in communion because of what Christ has done. And that necessarily means that we have to seek to be reconciled with one another, as hard as that may be. Let the love of Christ assure you of his forgiveness and be reconciled to God and with one another. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we, um, we confess that, I confess that there are uh, relationships that are not honoring to you, that are broken, um, that frankly, um, I've been making very little or no effort at being reconciled. And there are others that I, I've just put it out of my mind and have completely um, ignored. And God, there may be people here um, today who need to be reconciled with one another uh, in this church, with their families. And God, I know, I know it's not easy. But God, I know also that it is a work that you have called us to. And we have seen over the years, God, that you can make all things possible. And so, God, as your people, because you have reconciled us to yourself, in that hope, in that power, in that joy, help us to be reconciled. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who gives us the power to make all things new. Amen.